Well, hello, everybody, again, and welcome to the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy on a sunny, great day here, the day after St. Joseph's Feast Day, and we're happy you're with us. I'm Father Chris Alar, one of the Marians of the Immaculate Conception, and it's an honor to have you here. You know, today, as you saw on the screen, is a fun talk. One of the funnest classes that I had, along with the angels, is an elective I took in seminary called the saints. <laughs> so I did a talk on the angels several months back, but I haven't yet done a talk on the saints and especially how we defend it as Catholics when people say, you know, there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. And the and that's true. Yes, we're going to talk about that. And uh, the saints can't hear you. They're dead. And why do you pray to them? You can't pray to the saints. We're going to talk about all that. And so I'm bringing you and I'm so... Uh, enjoying this, and I hope you are too, back to seminary with me. As I say, you get to do it at home with no tuition. And so let us begin with a prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask that you send the Holy Spirit down upon us to open our minds and hearts to receive the grace you wish to bestow upon us. And through the intercession of Mary and St. Joseph and all the angels and all the saints, may our knowledge of you be greater so that our love of you can be greater. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As I said, I've, uh, I love this topic because it's so misunderstood. And you might think, well, Father, I already know that we don't worship the saints and, you know, this and that. Well, I think you're going to learn something today because as I go back to my own seminary notes, this is an awesome way for me to learn. Um, I have a couple scholars that I work with that I've bounced ideas off of them. They gave me some ideas. <clears throat> so I spend, like I said before, hours, hours each week putting together so that you only have to give us a little over an hour and you reap the benefits of that. So thank you to all of our Marian helpers. Now, what is a saint? All right, this might seem obvious, but we're going to go through this in more detail. All right. All Christians, all of us are called to be saints, all right? In fact, do you know that people say, well, you Catholics, this saints thing is crazy. Do you know that the word saints appears in the Bible? Take a guess how many times? 10, 20, 229 times the word saint appears in the Bible. This is obviously important. Saint is a Latin word, or saint is from the Latin word sanctus, which means someone that has been set apart to be holy. And we all are called to do that. And so this is something very, very important that we sometimes don't understand. And I'm turning off my cell phone ringer. Now, now, <clears throat> We venerate, we don't worship, we'll talk about that more, people worthy of honor, and this is how the Catholics are misunderstood. Why? Because we honor people every day in our society. Uh, athletes, uh, actors, doctors, we honor them greatly. In fact, sometimes there's even worship. We get into sports idols and and, and Hollywood movie star idols. It becomes a worship, way more than what the Catholic Church does with our saints. We don't worship. 
Now, in fact, society has even become more worshiping of these figures than we Catholics as, as the ultimate figures in the saints. Now, saints do not have power on their own. We Catholics do not claim that. When we pray to them, we're going to talk about this. I have a great short video to show you on that topic of praying to the saints. But they do not have power on their own. They are only given it by God. Now we venerate these saints. And there's a difference from that to worship. Now, unlike society, we do not create our saints. Um, society creates who the new movie star is going to be. Uh, society creates who new, the new great um, face of uh, the Major League Baseball is going to be. Um, they create that. We don't create the saints. Instead, we recognize them. God creates them. And so this is important now. A saint with a capital S. So you could see saint written with a capital S or a small s. Capital S saint donates a person who was formally canonized by the church, which means they're guaranteed in heaven. The church has the authority to make that statement. And a small s saint is anyone in heaven, whether or not they are recognized or not, canonized or not. Every soul in heaven is a saint. Did you also know that every soul in purgatory is a saint? They're just cleaning up a bit. They've already got their eternal reward. Every soul in purgatory will eventually get to heaven. All right, now, these people form what is said in Hebrews 12.1 as the great cloud of witnesses. So saints are persons who lived, quote, this is the definition now of a saint. Persons who lived heroically virtuous lives, offered their life for others, or were martyred for their faith, and who are worthy of veneration or imitation. Do you know that this is scriptural? You're going to say, Father, wait a minute, why are you Catholics saying this? It's in the Bible, and we'll get to that. So the veneration of saints, this scares a lot of people. It scared me years ago. Falls under the term cultus, or cult. Oh, man. I sometimes wish the Catholic Church wouldn't use certain words. I get it's from the Latin, but man, when we use the term cult of Mary, that just, yes, it's beautiful, it's accurate, it's true, but man, does it mislead people. You're calling yourself a cult. That's because cult in our language in modern day times has a different meaning than the Latin cultus, which describes a particular devotion or entrustment to a particular saint or a group of saint, saints, but not worship. And so when they hear cult today, you think worship. That's not what it means in the original Latin. So when you say the cult of Mary, don't get scared. All right, now, why do we have saints? Okay, Romans 6, chapters, chapter 6, 1 through 14, says we are all baptized, or we are baptized into Christ's death, so also into his life. So we are one in Christ through baptism, so we are called to be holy, to be saints. Now, we share in this common life and identity with Christ, being members of his mystical body. Now, St. Paul says this. 
And it's going to be important here. So the church has saints because Jesus's mystical body, what body Jesus has hands and feet, so does the mystical body. And the hands and the feet of the body of Christ are the saints. You guys are the hands and feet. When you help us do this ministry of spreading divine mercy around the world, by the very fact that you're tuning in has kept us going. If we got no viewers, we wouldn't be doing this anymore. But you guys tuning in is keeping us going. And this evangelization is going around the world. So you guys are being the hands and the feet simply by watching and learning about your Lord. Now, this all connects to the head. Jesus is the head. But the hands and the feet, that's us. Jesus is the head. Mary is the neck. So everything comes from the head, goes through Mary the neck, out to the body. The hands and the feet, that's us. And we share in that. So Jesus uses this example of, you know, of, for instance, uh, the power in this body. All right, now remember when people just touched the hem of the garment of Jesus, that woman just said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, can you imagine what it would happen when people touch us as the actual hands or feet of Jesus? If that woman was healed just by touching that garment of Jesus, just think what should happen to her if she touched the body of Christ, the hands and the feet. That's us. That's us, the members of his body. So the real question isn't why or how the church has all these extraordinary, impossible, wonder-working saints, but why aren't more of us like that? That's the ultimate question. Why aren't more of us like that? That's the question. Not why there are some like that. The question is why more of us aren't like that. And so why isn't every Christian a luminous, bright light flashing of God's greatness? That's how you will be in heaven. Heaven is, your greatness in heaven is how much you reflected the light of Christ on earth. And so when you're in heaven, that shining of the light that you will burn brightly with that beacon of light that you're called to be is how much you reflect Christ. And the brightest of the lights is the saints, what we strive to be. All right, now, we have all been baptized. We've all received him, consuming his body and blood. We've all received the sacraments. We are guaranteed this grace. This is the way we become saints. Now, let's keep going. There's more reasons why we have the saints. All right. Saints are an example. You've heard me talk about what parent who has their child playing football, who's a young fourth grader who's playing tackle football, what parent wouldn't want their young running back to be like Barry Sanders? I know I always bring up Barry Sanders, greatest running back in football history from Detroit. Now, the why, because when Barry Sanders, he had the greatest natural ability, he was dedicated, but most of all, he was humble. When he would score a touchdown, he didn't do some dance, he just handed the ball to the referee and he always credited his teammates. Everybody wants their child who does a, who's a running back in football to be like Barry Sanders because he gives that perfect example. He proves that it can be done. 
that greatness can be achieved. He is, like the saints, a good example. You know, people are like, Father, why do you Catholics have saints? Well, you know what? Non-Catholics have testimonies. Don't you go to non-Catholic or haven't you seen non-Catholic broadcasts or videos and they'll do altar calls and people come up there and say, this was my life before Jesus Christ. Here's my conversion. Now here's my life after Jesus Christ. Well, wait a minute. You're supposed to focus only on God. We're not supposed to talk about you. No, because you are part of the body of Christ. That's why we talk about the saints. It doesn't take away from God. It talks about who God is in his totality. All right, so how do I know, for instance, that evangelization can reach foreign lands? The saints. How do I know that there's hope for even the greatest sinners? The saints. People like St. Augustine, who said, Lord, make me chaste, just not yet. <laughs> he was struggling with, with sexual addiction. What about... People like Blessed Bartolo Lungo, you know who he is? A former Satanist. He was a Satanist. He's living proof that God's mercy is there for the greatest, even sinner. And that's why we have these examples in the saints. So can you, if you think, Father, I'm really bad, I don't think you're probably worse than Bartolo Lungo, who was a worshiping Satanist. And yet he became a saint, a blessed now, the former prostitute, I talked about her last week or a couple weeks ago, St. Mary of Egypt. She had a conversion. She went to church, the church grounds, to find customers for her prostitution. Uh, I was going to say vocation. Oh, my. Uh, job or career. And she had a conversion. She's a living example of why we have saints, because otherwise, a poor woman caught in prostitution would never think there's ever a way out. Somebody who's caught in drug addiction would never think there's a way out. Somebody who's caught in sexual addiction would never think there's a way out. All they have to do is look at St. Augustine and see that's a great example. There's a way out. And so these are things that are great. Now, the faith and devotion of the saints can support our own weaknesses and supply what is lacking in our own faith. How do we know this? Jesus makes it very clear that sometimes he uses the faith of others to help supply our lack of faith. Y'all remember the four men and the paralytic? One of my favorite gospels where the four men lower the paralytic down through the roof to Jesus and Jesus sees the man paralyzed and those four men climbed up to the roof, cut a hole just to lower him down to Jesus because they trusted. And what did those men, or what did Jesus say to those men? Did, did he look at that paralyzed guy and say, you know what, your faith has healed you? No, he looked at the four men in the roof and said, your faith has healed this guy. So it's an example of the faith of others can help us in our faith. That's what a saint does. This is powerful. Those in heaven are free of the body and the distractions of this life. So they can focus on God and they have greater devotion than anyone here on earth so they can help us. You know, James, the, my favorite book in the Bible, declares the prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. Did you hear that? The prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. Don't you want that prayer on your side? It has powerful effects. Christians in heaven are more righteous than us. 
They've been purified since they have been made perfect to stand in God's presence. I'm not making this up. This is Hebrews 12, 22. They are more righteous than anyone on earth, meaning their prayers are more efficacious. So if we didn't have saints, God's grace would be less effective. And don't say, well, no, but that's not true, Father. That could never be true. Actually, what did Jesus say when he went to the town and couldn't make, uh, perform any miracles? Because of the lack of the faith of the people. Even Jesus couldn't perform a miracle. Well, that's impossible, Father. It's because he chooses to do it this way. He wants the faith of the people to be actively involved. You can't get a higher level of faith than the saints. They can help lift us up. This is in scripture. We'll talk about it. All right. What about that famous example? Jesus is the only mediator. This is true. This says it in the Bible. We should just go directly to God. We shouldn't mess with the saint. There's only one mediator. Okay. Here's my point. We do go directly to God as Catholics. This is what the Our Father prayer is. This is what the Mass is. This is what the Eucharist is. Don't let anyone tell you we don't go directly to God. We do. But God also chooses to come to us through other people and things. Like Moses. He dealt with the people through Moses. So if the people wanted to deal with God, they went through Moses. It's the way God set it up. Christ is the only way. This is true. The mediator. But he's the only way to the Father. Now listen to this. This is important. Christ is the only way or the mediator, the only mediator to the Father. But there are many ways to Jesus Christ. You can find Jesus Christ in many, many ways. He doesn't tell you that you're not limited or you're limited by the ways you come to me. You can't come to me through your neighbor. Did Jesus ever say that? Did Jesus ever say you can't come to me through your cousin or through your spouse? He wants you to come through him. He wants you to come through your spouse to him. The one mediator means Jesus is the only mediator to the Father, but there's many ways to Jesus. This is where people get confused. Christ is a unique mediator between man and God because there is only one person who is both man and God, Jesus. He's the only one to bridge the gap between the two, the God-man. But Jesus is the one mediator to the Father. So ultimately, we're going to the Father, yes, only through Jesus. We don't say, we'll go to St. John Bosco and then to God the Father. No, St. John Bosco takes us to Jesus, who is the one mediator, then to God the Father. It makes perfect sense. Jesus is the one mediator, but his body is called the church, which consists of the saints. So when we go through the church, we are going through Christ because his body is the church or the church is his body. So in proclaiming Christ as the one mediator, and this is Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, this is important. In proclaiming Christ the one mediator, 1 Timothy chapter 2 excludes any other parallel or equal mediation, but not subordinate mediation. Meaning nobody's equal to Jesus, but there's ways and mediators to get us to Jesus. Then Jesus takes us to the Father, only him. 
And this is powerful stuff. We are co-workers with Jesus in the vineyard. The Bible tells us that. Paul tells us that. And so we have to understand this. In fact, Paul urges, listen to this. <clears throat> Paul urges, quote, this is T Timothy, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all men. Did you just hear what he said? Prayers and supplications. Prayers for each other are a form of mediation. All right? The Greek word for one, used by Paul when he calls Jesus the one mediator, is not monos, which would mean soul in every way, shape, or form, but rather eis, which can mean one in the sense of principle or main or first in a series. So that's who Jesus is. So whenever you told someone about Jesus or prayed with them to Jesus, you're a mediator. So how could that not be allowed? Does Jesus tell you not to pray with somebody? Does Jesus tell you, you know what, Father Chris, I don't want you reaching out to those people on the live stream today. I don't want you bringing them to me because then you're the mediator. Yeah, that's right. I'm not the mediator. Jesus is. But I am a mediator that brings you to the mediator, and so are you. If you forward this video, you're being a mediator. If you say to somebody, God bless you, I'll pray for you, you're being a mediator. And so people don't understand this. Jesus is the principal mediator who enables many other sub-mediators to transfer the grace of God. So Christians, we act as sub-mediators in Christ. When we pray for our neighbors, we help them, anything along those lines. Now let's look at our next slide. The grace of God, all right, is mediated to us through the church the sacraments, the priest. Look at that picture. What's going on there? The grace of Christ on the cross on your left is the cross, the grace, but what's on the right? The priest is mediating. He's bringing you that grace through the Eucharist. We experience a liturgy that's been handed on from priests and bishops. We've, we pray creeds that has been given to us from the first church fathers. This has been handed on. The Bible teaches us to hand things on, to teach this to your children. You're being a mediator. We have all of this because the church is the mystical body of Christ. When we go to church, we go to God. When we go to the church, we do go to God. For the Bible, or the bride and his betrothed, or I should say the bride and the bridegroom, are one. Now, do we worship them? Okay, you may know this probably. You might be able to answer this and say, no, we don't, but do you know how to say why? Do you know that? All right, we give the saints honor, but we do not give the adoration that is due to God alone. You probably know this, but I wanna to explain to you more. We honor certain humans above others. Like I honor um, certain uh, founding fathers of the United States of America. 
much more than I honor somebody trying to tear her down and destroy her. That founding father deserves my honor in building up a nation way more than somebody who is going to try to destroy it. And so we honor certain humans above others. So why not the saints? All right, let's talk about this. Now let's look at our next slide. Here's a good answer. Do we worship the saints? All right. Now, the very four levels of honor and worship are given right here. This is per Augustine. This is church teaching. Latria is the worship owed to God alone. And we Catholics only give God Latria. The worship due to God alone. Now the next level is hyperdulia. This is the highest veneration given to Our Lady Mary, the Mother of God. She is the greatest of the saints. Then we have protodulia, which is the honor owed to Saint Joseph, the first among the rest of the saints. Again, notice these are honor. Mary is honor, Joseph is honor, and then finally we have dulia is the honor owed to the rest of the saints. Okay, this is important. Now, why? Because in this, dulia, we honor the saints, but we never sacrifice to them. If anybody says you Catholics worship the saints, I want you to answer the, ask this. Can you please tell me where we offer sacrifice to the saints? Because that's true worship. And the only sacrifice we offer is on this altar to God, not to the saints. Now, however, as I just read you, honor is due though. Not worship, but honor. And this is in the Bible. Let's take a look at our next slide. I have given them the glory that you gave me. This is Jesus talking to God the Father in John 17, Father Mike Gately's favorite Bible chapter. Jesus says to God the Father, I have given them the glory. Who's he talking about? Humans, his disciples, the saints. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Right there, Jesus is saying, I'm giving them glory, not the glory due God, the honor that they are due. Let's look at our next slide because it gets better. Here's Romans 13, 7. Pay all of them their dues. Jesus is talking about, or Paul's talking about humans. Taxes, to whom taxes are due. Revenue, to whom revenue is due. Respect to whom respect is due, and honor to whom honor is due. So when somebody says, how dare you do this to the saints or honor the saints, say, well, gee, Paul told us to. What about Romans 13, 7? Paul tells you to honor them. Why don't you? You're going against the Bible. Wow. All right, now. Let's take our next uh, look at our next slide. Y'all seen this before? Catholic relics? Whoa, that scares everybody. You should see people in the shrine when they come here and they are not uh, Catholic. 
and they see us venerating the toe bone of St. Faustina. Oh man, I've had many people freaked out that I've had to talk down a little bit and say, now this is, this is a tradition that goes back in the church thousands of years to the first century even. And so why do we have them? Do we worship their relics? It seems like it because we kiss them. Well, not so fast. These relics, first of all, we know they are authentic because the congregation for the causes of the saints determines what ones are real. Relics of saints are respected or venerated similar to the veneration of holy images because of what they represent. We don't worship the canvas. Jesus said on the image of divine mercy, we, re we worship what it represents. It's the same with a relic. Now, they have existed, as I said, as part of Christianity tradition since the first century. So who are we to say that the first Christians were wrong? We know this. In fact, the veneration of Polycarp's relics, St. Polycarp, is recorded in the martyrdom of Polycarp way back in 150 AD. All right? We have relics because these mortal remains of the deceased will be in heaven one day. Is there anybody or you know or anything that you can look at around this world of yours and say that particular person or thing is guaranteed in heaven? No, because a saint is not declared a saint till after they die. So there is no living person that we can say is guaranteed will be in heaven. There's no living animal that we could say will be guaranteed in heaven. There's no living thing. This piece of paper is not guaranteed to be in heaven. But do you know the one thing that is guaranteed that will be in heaven? The relic of a consecrated saint or a canonized saint. Because that saint at the last judgment will be united with its body. So when you have that toe bone of Saint Faustina, that thing you're holding will be in heaven someday. That thing you're holding will not remain on this earth, but will be in heaven, guaranteed, because it belonged to a canonized saint, which we know is guaranteed in heaven, so their body will be too. So we are venerating this part of them that will be in heaven, guaranteed. There's nothing else on earth that we can say that about, even a living person, because they're not canonized until they die. Now, once they're canonized, that's why we have saints' relics. This is powerful stuff. And so we have these relics because it's associated with the holiness of these souls, which will be united with their body at the last day, the resurrection. Relics, the word derives from the Latin reliquiae, meaning remains. And for the loenquiere, which means to leave behind. And so a reliquary is actually the house um, let me see if we have St. Faustina. I guess, no, I'm sorry, she's put away. But it's, you know what a reliquary is? It's a shrine. A reliquary is a shrine that holds that saint. Just like this is the natural shrine. And I was just going to say, well, there's no saints in it. Hopefully, Brother Mark and I someday will be a relic inside this shrine. But not yet. So, this is what's powerful. So, the shrine that houses one or more relics is called a reliquary. Now, shrines were built over great saints, the relics of great saints. This is what St. Peter's is, the Vatican. What is the Vatican? 
It's St. Peter's. What is St. Peter's? It was built over the remains or the relics of St. Peter. And so this is very, very powerful. But they cannot be put on the altar for veneration. You know, um, I made that huge mistake. I was out in uh, several missions, and I put the relic of St. Faustina on the altar. And um, we venerated it. And I look back now at my own notes. I'm like, how did, I, how did I not know this? How did I miss this in seminary? Well, now you know in your seminary class with us, we don't do that. Only the Blessed Sacrament is to be venerated on the altar, not these relics in a reliquary. I made that mistake myself. All right, relics are a way to bring saints to people who can't get to the saints. Some of you can't travel. You can't go to Europe to venerate the tomb of St. Faustina. But the relic can come to you. This is powerful. So homage or respect is not really paid to some inanimate object, but to the person. That's the same as an image. And indeed, the veneration of a holy person is itself honor paid to God. Remember, you honor the art, you honor the artist. God, if he was an artist, what's his greatest masterpiece? Mary. He's not going to look at you when you honor Mary and say, you know what? I created her. I'm the artist. She's my greatest artwork. But you know what? I don't want you, I don't want you liking it. I don't want you looking at it. I don't want you venerating it. No, the artist would say, thank you. Honor the art, you honor the artist. God's the artist. His art is the saints. So when we honor the art, we honor the artist. Powerful stuff. Now, there are three classes of relics. You've probably heard this first class relic, second class relic, third class relic. Now, what are they? All right. Those First-class relics, we always think of the parts of the saints, their bones or their hair. But do you know that the events in Christ's life are considered first-class relics? Like the cross, pieces of the cross, the thorns, those are actually first-class relics. Now, second-class relics are things that a saint used. So like a Bible that they held and read or a rosary, um, or clothes they wore, those are second-class relics. Now, a third-class relic is things that came into contact or touched the first or second-class relic. So, for instance, if I have a relic of St. Faustina and I touch a rosary to it, that rosary's now become a third-class relic. You make, does that make sense? So things touching the first or second class, like a small piece of cloth, they can be that a third class. Now, can you sell relics? Not first or second class, but you know you can, we can sell third class relics. That's why a piece of cloth inside a prayer card, people would flip out when they saw them on our gift shop. I remember a bus came in from New York one day and this woman cornered me. Father, how dare you sell this relic? It was a piece of cloth that had been touched to the relic of St. Faustina. It's a third-class relic, and those can be sold. We're not, we're not discrediting. We're not doing anything against the church. You could look that up. That's church teaching. All right, let's keep going. All right, here to me is awesome. This is one of the funnest things that I've done. I should have put this in the beginning to keep your attention. But I want to give you a list of some of the relics that you may not know are out there. To me, this is fascinating. 
And, and, and these things are out there. All right, there are many, many relics attributed to Jesus. Perhaps the, the most famous is the Shroud of Turin. Do you know that that's a relic? Yes, it was part of Jesus's resurrection. Now pieces of the cross or instruments of his passion are claimed many places. But I want to show you a few that you may not be aware of. This is fascinating. Stay with us. Do you know? Let's look at our first slide. What this is? That's the holy lance that tradition says speared the side of Christ. You can find that in Vienna, Austria. All right? The holy thorns of the crown of thorns are in London, England, and some in Notre Dame Cathedral. Remember the priest that rescued them from the fire? So there are known thorns. Let's take a look at our next slide. What is this? Well, it looks like it's something on the floor, Father. No, that is the seamless robe of Jesus in the Trier Cathedral, the oldest church in Germany. That is, tradition says, the seamless garment of Jesus that the soldiers rolled dice for. Let's look at our next slide. Any idea what this is? This is the sandals of Jesus. They're inside a gold frame. Those are the sandals of Jesus that are in Prume, Germany, in that same diocese, Trier Diocese. That is incredible. All right, before I show you the next one, I, wanted to, I don't have a slide for this, but in Aachen Cathedral in also Germany, in one cathedral, they have four relics. The knapsack carried by Jesus, tradition says. The loincloth worn by Jesus. You ever wonder what happened to these things? They didn't just disappear. People saved them. There is a dress of Mary. Mary had to have clothes. Where did they go? Why not to this church? And the decapitation cloth of John the Baptist. They are all in this cathedral in Aachen, Germany, in the cathedral in Germany. All right, let's look at our next slide. I give a super bonus to anybody who knows what this is. This is in the Basilica of Our Lady in Maastricht in the Netherlands. You know what this is? The girdle of Mary. I bet you've never heard of that relic. <laughs> I haven't. Fascinating. The girdle of Mary. This is why we have relics. Do you think God is going to say, how dare you have that? You idol worshiper, we're not worshiping Mary's girdle. We're honoring the fact that this touched the blessed mother. All right, let's look at our next slide. This is a tomb. You know what this is a tomb of? This is in Cologne, again, Germany. I think I got to go to Germany to see some of this. This is the shrine of the three kings. The tradition says contains the bones of the three magi. Could you imagine being there with the bones of the three wise men? And this isn't something that aggravates God. What about all the others? What about St. Peter's Basilica? I mentioned that. Has St. Peter's relics. Do you know St. Mark's relics? 
Where are they? The gospel writer. They are held at St. Mark's Basilica in Venice, Italy. What about St. James? His relics are supposedly held at the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostello in Spain. You ever see that movie with Charlie Sheen? Or, um, no, I'm sorry, his father. Definitely not Charlie Sheen. Um, Martin Sheen, called The Way, where you walk, you make a pilgrimage. That's where you end up. St. James relics. What about St. Andrew? St. Andrew's relics are contained in the Basilica of St. Andrew in Petras, Greece. What about St. Matthew, the gospel writer? His relics are supposedly in the cathedral in Salerno, Italy. All right, what about John the evangelist, the disciple who Jesus loved? Supposedly, his tomb is in the Basilica of St. John's in Ephesus in Turkey. And by the way, I didn't get the slide ready, but I'm going to be doing a pilgrimage, two pilgrimages, one with Stephen Ray on the footsteps of St. Paul. We're going to see, we're going to go to Ephesus. And I invite you to join us. You, we'll get it on our webpage. Don't worry, I'll get it up. It's in, um, it's in October. And I would love you guys to join us because if you come, I will be there with you. We'll personally be able to spend time with you, personally be able to talk with you, personally be able to be with you. If you want to join me on this, you can call um, Peter, who is my assistant. If you want to write down the number, it's 413-298-1303. And I'm also being doing a great pilgrimage uh, to uh, France with uh, Deacon Harold Jones, uh, sorry, uh, Harold Silvers, Deacon Harold Silvers, and that is in May. And the same thing, if you want to be part of that, join me, go to the beautiful places in Europe, please, same thing, call Peter, 1-800, I'm sorry, 1-413-298-1303, and say, I want to be part of that pilgrimage with Father Chris. And so God bless all of you if you can join us, because I want to spend time with you, get to meet you. Uh, you're part of our family. Now, let's go back to the relics. God's grace comes to us sometimes through things, not just people. Sometimes through things. How do we know this? Oh, man. Get your pen out if you want Bible, reference, support, information. Let's start with Exodus 13, 19. Moses, quote, also took Joseph's bones with him. Moses is carrying somebody's bones. Joseph, right? Not St. Joseph, our, our father, foster father of Jesus, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have that as his son was Joseph. Now, Joseph had made the Israelites take a solemn oath saying, God will surely take care of you, and you must bring my bones with you. <laughs> so this is what Joseph said. Now, what about 2 Samuel 6, verse 7? Oh, this is a scary one. Uzzah stretched out his hand to the Ark of the Covenant and steadied it, for the oxen were tipping it over. Then the Lord became angry with him and struck him dead on the spot. Wow, poor guy. But that shows you how sacred that thing was. It housed the law of God. This was a true relic. 
It wasn't a person, but God demanded sanctity, reverence. Would God have killed him if it was just a box? Then he, no, that's crazy. What about 2 Kings 13, 21? Quote, but when the man came in contact with the bones of Elisha, he came back to life. By touching the bones of Elisha, he came back to life. That's a relic. We're not worshiping the bones. What about Mark 5, verse 25 through 34? I mentioned this before. The woman said, if I just touch his clothes, I will be cured. And immediately her flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her infliction. And Jesus said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be cured of your affliction. Simply, she said, if I just touch it, it was the garment. This is something that we Catholics don't know how to understand how the rule of relics Acts 19, verse 11 and 12. So extraordinary were the mighty deeds God accomplished at the hands of Paul. Get a load of this one. This is one of my favorite. That when his handkerchief, <laughs> Paul's handkerchief, was touched to the sick, their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. You don't have to argue with me. Simply look up Acts 19, verse 11 and 12, and it'll tell you that people were healed by Paul's handkerchief. Now, does that mean the handkerchief had the grace? No, the grace comes from God, but he uses tools, people and things. The Ark of the Covenant was a thing that God used. What about Acts 5.12? They carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them. A large number of people from the towns gathered, bringing the sick and those disturbed by unclean spirits, and they were all cured by Peter's shadow. Don't believe me? Acts 5 verse 12. Why does the church have relics? This is the reason. And this is what we have in every altar. Every altar has a relic. Now, why is that? Why does the Catholic church have an altar or a relic on every altar? That comes from Revelation 6, verse 9. When he broke open the fifth seal, I, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the witness they bore to the word of God. That's the saints. So, so John is saying in the book of Revelation that I, I saw underneath the altar the, soul, the souls of those who had lost their life and witness to God. That's the martyrs. That's the saints. This is amazing. Now I'm going to get into one that is really amazing to me, the incorruptibles. You ever hear of this? How come we don't hear about this on the news? Um, Dr. Dwight, or Father Dwight Longnecker, I did a couple conferences with him, made some good points. I want to say some things he did. Now, what are the incorruptibles? Because the church has over 100 confirmed, documented cases. An incorruptible is when a saint dies, but their body doesn't decay. It defies all science. They are the saints whose mortal bodies have not decayed or been corrupted after they die. Sometimes it's a whole body. Other times it's a limb or an organ, like John Vianney's heart. All right, now, I want to show you some pictures here that are mind-blowing to me. Now, 
One of the first ones, before I do that, in all the way back to second century, we have the Roman Saint Cecilia, who was reported as incorrupt. She's one of the really early ones. And as late as this last few centuries. Let's look at our, first, or our next slide. This looks like a sleeping woman. Do you know who this is? Saint Bernadette Subarus, who was the visionary at Lourdes. This is how she looks. Is that not incredible? Show that to a non-Catholic. How do you explain it? Don't believe me? Go to Lourdes. Go to um, France, where she is still with us today. Look at that. All right, the body of St. Teresa of Avila. She did not even decay, even though she was buried in wet mud. How do you explain that? The bodies of St. Pasco Balin, St. Francis Xavier, and St. John of the Cross, they all remain fresh and intact, even though they were covered for months in sacks of quicklime. What is quicklime? It's a chemical used to hasten or quicken decomposition of human flesh. So it doesn't smell. It de decomposes. Yet those saints didn't decay, even though quicklime was put on their bodies. Let's look at our next slide. This is St. Margaret Mary Alacoque. She gave us the sacred heart. She gave us the sacred heart. And you can see in there, look at that. She looks like she's sleeping. How about our next slide? Our next slide, this is St. Claire of Montefalco. She lived in the 1200s, early 1300s. She was a holy Italian nun. Let's look at her. And she said to her sisters, if you seek the cross of Christ, take my heart after I die. The sisters are probably like, what, sister? And she says, yes, take my heart. There you will find the suffering Lord. Whoa. So what happened? She died and her body was incorrupt. So the sisters did what she asked, probably freaking out. And they took and removed her heart because she said, if you seek the cross of Christ, take my heart and you will find the Lord. So they took her heart and they removed it and they found unprinted on the cardiac tissue figures of tiny crucifix complete with the five wounds of the crucifixion. You can't make this stuff up. And it's all documented. The hundred, over 100 cases in the church are thoroughly documented. St. John of the Cross, when he died in 1591, he was buried in a vault beneath the floor of a church. And when the tomb was opened months later, the body was fresh and intact. So then they amputated a finger and it was amputated to use as a relic. And guess what? The body bled. This was way after he died. They cut the finger for a relic and the body bled fresh blood. This is documented. Then later, 300 years later almost, they exhumed him again in 1859 and 1909 and the body was still fresh. This is St. John of the Cross. And then again, he was exhumed in 1955, 400 years later almost, and he was still moist and flexible. The skin was a little discolored, but hey, I'll take it, right? <laughs> 
Now, we have many, many incorruptibles. I can't talk about them all, but St. Clear of Assisi, St. Rita, my favorite, St. Vincent de Paul, St. John Vianney, St. Catherine Labore, St. John Bosco, St. Maria Goretta. I could go on and on. They're all incorruptible. How do you explain that? I want to know where the ABC Nightly News is. Holy cow. Say one little thing. Uh, against the coronavirus and, and they'll come and shut you down and turn all kinds of things on and you'll be on the news, but yet you have a saint who hasn't corrupted in 400 years? Where's the nightly news? Where's the story in the headline papers? Crazy. All right, but there are questions. You know, it is likely that <clears throat> these are true, but there are questions. Uh, the phenomenon here are most likely true because they have been documented these incorruptibles, as well as any miracle ever. So you can go and see them. You can even see them. And on our pilgrimages, if you go with me, we'll visit some of these incorruptibles. So very often their bodies are on public display. Also, this is true, we believe, because not only are they still visible, but these people, when they opened up the tombs, got affidavits, there were workers that were there, even non-Christians that were there, that testified what they saw. Now some questions remain, I said this before. Why do some incorruptibles, for instance, stay incorrupt and all of a sudden just decay? Well, how can some body parts remain incorrupt and yet other parts don't? Part of the body is, part of the body isn't. Well, maybe the part of the body isn't is part of the body they sinned with at one time in their life before a conversion. I don't know. But if, another question, if this is a sign of saintliness, why aren't all saints incorruptible? Well, all saints are sinners. Remember, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. I love that. There's hope for me and you. Every saint is a sinner, or every, sorry, every saint has a past, meaning they're a sinner, and every sinner has a future, meaning they can be a saint. That's amazing. And so this is why we do have some questions, all right? Bernadette, St. Bernadette and St. Therese of Lisieux. Why was this? this? This raised a question. Both were 19th century French girls who went into a convent and died of tuberculosis at an early age, yet St. Bernadette's body was incorrupt, yet St. Therese, uh, Therese of Lisieux was just a skeleton. Now, a lot of people say, why would that be, Father? And I used to laugh. My seventh grade class, when I taught him this, asked me that, and I said, I think it's because she cried too much. <laughs> and I don't mean that disrespectfully. Please don't send me letters. Please, please. I, I love St. Therese just as much as you do. But when I read Story of the Soul, I was like, oh my, jeez, does she cry. She cries and cries. So I, I don't mean that disrespectfully, but just a little levity there. God bless her. I could only hope to be one one millionth as holy as St. Therese. All right. Why has this not been studied more in the scientific community? I think they're afraid. The church advises, though, they don't even push it. The church says, fine, you study it. First, look at natural explanations. There's nothing wrong with that. In some cases, environmental conditions may have protected the remains from corruption, maybe an airtight container. All right, science and historical research may be able to explain some of this. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, nevertheless, 
Here's the main point. Once the natural explanations of the human effect or the natural surrounding environment have been explained, several cases still exist that are unexplainable. The incorruptibles demonstrate that the spiritual and the physical worlds are intertwined. We are body and soul. We don't know all the precise rules of how that works, but we know that, we, we, that what we do with our bodies affects our souls and what we do with the spiritual realm affects our bodies. So in other words, don't think your body isn't affected by your mental sin or vice versa. Abuse your body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, it affects your soul. So we are a composite. So the incorruptibles provide us this, a compelling sign that points to the resurrection of the dead. We will be joined together. All God's saints will receive back their bodies. I don't know if that's a good thing, because I always thought when I got to heaven, I'll be able to be six foot six. <laughs> I won't be, you'll have your body, but your body will be glorified. Your body will be perfected. Your body will be the way that it was meant to be by God. And remember, we will not judge people by their physical characteristics. Tall, short, thin, fat, heavy, ugly, pretty, whatever. You will shine with a light based on how you reflected the light of Christ when you were on earth. It has nothing to do with your physical appearance, even though you'll have your physical body. Nobody will judge you by it. You'll be looked at by the light that you emit as Christ-like people. All right, now, how do we pray to the saints? The same way you would speak to a wise friend or a family member. First of all, someone close to you. The same way, how do you pray to them? That you would speak to a senior colleague or an expert in your field or a teacher. Because you want to learn from them. Talk to them like a teacher. Hey, St. Augustine, you struggle with chastity. I'm struggling with chastity. Help me do this. So-and-so, you struggled with this. Help me do this. St. Jerome, he was the most fiery, impatient, angry tempers of all the saints ever. Hey, St. Jerome, I struggle with impatience. I get angry. Help me. This is powerful. There are perfect examples for us to learn from. They have the ability in the Holy Spirit to hear you, hear your prayers, and those of all of us on earth. But this brings our next question. All right? This brings. Saints, people argue this all the time. Saints can't hear our prayers because they're dead and we can't talk to them. Where does that come from? That actually comes from our next slide, Deuteronomy 18. Let's read that. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire. Oh, wow. That could reference abortion. Who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or cast spells, or who is a medium, or spiritist, or who consults the dead. All right. 
Non-Catholics use that passage. You're not supposed to talk to the dead. I remember in, in, in high school, I was confronted by that. You Catholics, you talk to the dead. That's against the Bible. All right, you gotta understand what's going on here. All right, when God has forbidden this, talking to the dead, he's talking about the necromantic practice of conjuring up the spirits. God thus indicates that one is not to conjure up the dead for purposes of gaining information. Like Houdini, I used to like Houdini, but he was all into that seance stuff, trying to conjure up the dead to find out the future. This is why the church says don't go to tarot card readers or psychics because you're trying to get information conjuring up dead spirits. That's what Deuteronomy 18 is saying is against. One is to look to God's prophets instead. So this is what we have to understand. The saints and the prophets are who we are to go to. That's totally different. Yet that Bible passage is used against us Catholics. Thus, one is not to hold a seance. This is true, but that's totally different than what we Catholics do in our praying or talking with the saints. And we'll tell you why in a minute. Well, Father, a saint can't hear our prayers at one time. How could Mary hear all these prayers from around the world in these different languages and all at the same time? She'd be omniscient. That would mean she's like God. No, in heaven, this is how God communicates. All the boundaries of space and time and languages are removed. Do you think they speak the king's English in heaven? No. So people are just, that's such a shallow argument. And I pray for patience because when I get very much attacked for this, it gets frustrating because that's such a shallow argument. God communicates in a way we don't communicate on earth. Moses and Elijah, when they appeared on Mount Tabor at the Transfiguration, they had died centuries earlier. They were dead. Or were they? No, they were alive. This is why God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm God of the living, not of the dead. That's in the Bible. Yes, they can hear us because we are part of the mystical body of Christ. Powerful stuff. In Revelation chapters 4, 5, 6, 8, the saints are all praying for us. Revelation 4, 5, 6, and 8, the saints are praying for you. So if the saints in heaven are offering our prayers to God, they must be aware of our prayers. There's nothing wrong with that. But wait a minute, why not pray directly to Jesus? We should, we can, we do. But why take out the other ways of ways we can get to Jesus? Listen to this, this is very important. If the mere fact that we can go straight to Jesus proved that we should ask no Christian in heaven to pray for us. So, okay, here we are Catholics saying we want to pray to the saints in heaven. Non-Catholics tell us, no, you can't. You go directly to Jesus. Okay, if you're telling me to go directly to Jesus, that means I cannot ask the saints in heaven to pray for me. Correct. Well, then that also would prove that we should not ask any Christian on earth to pray for us. 
Yet all of those non-Catholics do. They ask each other, pray for me. That's a mediator. All right? Let's go to our next slide. Praying for each other is simply what we Christians do. This is 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3. Let's read it. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, this is Paul talking, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. He didn't say just the living. For kings and all those in authority that we may live peacefully and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Paul is saying this is pleasing to God. Wow. This is powerful. Paul strongly encourages Christians to intercede for many different things. Why would humans do this if it wasn't in the Bible? It's in the Bible. Doing this pleases God, but why would doing, okay, here's the question. Why would humans doing this, what Paul told us to do, pray, please God, but saints doing it would not please God? Let's suppose Paul's not talking about people who've died. Father, I disagree with you. I think he's only talking about living human beings. All right. Why would human beings, living human beings, doing this intercessory prayer please God, but saints who have reached a higher level than us would offend God? This makes no sense. They are the greatest humans. This wouldn't offend God. Paul asks others to pray for him. And he says, you can be assured that I'm praying for you. Paul asked others to pray for him and he assured them that he was praying for them too. Now, I want to show you my only video today, but it is awesome. It's three and a half minutes. So see if you can bear with me. It's a little longer. Usually I show two minutes or so, but it's three and a half minutes. And this is um, my friends at Catholic Answers and Jimmy Aiken um, is really a good theologian. And he gave a great answer to praying how and why we pray to the saints. It may not be what you think. I always thought praying, you only pray to who you worship. And Jimmy Aiken saying, no. Let's watch this video. In New York on 101.7 FM, you're on Catholic Answers Live. Hello, Matt. How you doing? Good. Um, I have a question. I'm Catholic. My mom's Catholic. My mom turns to... St. Anthony to help find lost things, mm -hmm. and other, other saints, so-and-so, you know, for every saint does something different. Um, I have a guy I work with that is not Catholic, and I told, we were kind of talking about that because my mom lost her keys the other day, and she asked for St. Anthony to help find keys, and she found her keys. And he told me he doesn't agree with that because mm. he says praying to St. Anthony is like praying to another god. Mm. Yes. Me, personally, God is God, St. Anthony is St. Anthony. I don't see a saint as a God, but gotcha. he did, and I just didn't understand that. Okay. Um, it may help your friend to understand the origin of the word pray. Pray does not mean, or did not come from, a word that means worship. 
um, or adore or venerate or anything like that. Actually, the word pray originally just meant to ask. And so any request that you make of anybody can be described according to that usage as a prayer. And in uh, British English, you even find other examples of that. Uh, For example, um, you may have heard the contraction privy. If you ever say watch British period dramas on TV. Um, But we've got the music coming up on us now, so I'll finish on the other side. Uh, Matt, are you still there, my friend? Yes, sir. Okay. Okay. So I was talking about the history of the word pray and how it originally meant ask, and it still means that in many contexts. In British English, for example, there's a contraction you may hear uh, on television programs from England, especially period dramas. The contraction is prithee. It's a contraction of I pray thee or I ask you. And people use it to each other, and they're not talking to God, they're not even talking to a saint, they're just talking to another human being here on earth. Um, In the same way, in legal documents, uh, you will find that uh, if if you've ever gone to court and had your lawyer draft a legal document, you will find in the motion that your attorney makes language like, my client prays that the court does thus and so. And that just means my client asks that the court do a particular thing. So the word pray, according to its original meaning, just meant ask. And that's the way that it's um, used when we're talking about praying to the saints. We're not talking about worshiping them. We're not talking about treating them as other gods. We're just asking them for something. In particular, we're asking them to pray for us. We're asking them to pray to God on our behalf, to be our prayer partners, just like we would ask other people here on earth to pray for us. So unless your friend has a problem with asking other people for stuff, then and thinks we should only ask ever ask God for stuff, then in principle he should be open to the idea of asking saints for stuff, like asking them to be our prayer partners. And so framing matters in that light might help him understand it better. It's not that we're treating a saint as another god, it's we're treating a saint as another person, and simply asking them for something the way we ask other people for things. Now isn't that a great answer that explains why we pray that prayer means asking? Doesn't mean, and and who don't we ask? Well, I can't ask you, you're not God. You can't ask me to help me? No, you're not God. We don't do that. And so this is a powerful answer that I really thought would be helpful to you. Now, Jesus himself required us to pray for others. How do we know this? Matthew 5, 44. He even said to pray for our enemies. The Catholic Church strongly encourages praying directly to God. We are not saying not to. That's the primary thing. In fact, that's what the Mass is. The Mass is not about praying to any saint. The Mass is 100% worshiping God, the central act of Catholic worship, directed to God, and that's it, not the saints. But this doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask our fellow Christians in heaven to pray with us, even at the Mass. Pray with us. Now let's look at our next slide, because John says something very interesting in Revelation. John says in Revelation 5, 8, And when he had broken it, the four living creatures 
and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Wow. Right there, Revelation 5.8. This simple fact is, as this passage shows, the saints in heaven offer to God the prayers of the saints on earth, us. Now, I want to finish with two quick things because I think they're kind of fun. One, what is the process to become a canonized saint? And two, how do you know who your patron saint is? So that's with me. Stay with me and then we're done. All right. Let's talk about the canonization. How does a saint become a saint? All right. The work is done by the Congregation of the Causes of Saints, which was established almost 500 years ago, right? There's much of investigation that goes into it. There are four steps to sainthood, starting with your own diocese, being declared a servant of God in your diocese where you died. That doesn't need any miracle. It just, we are determining, we're opening a cause because we think this person can be a saint. Then let's look at our slide. This is the steps to sainthood. So after the servant of God, they would become venerable. They become venerable, then they become blessed. That's a beatification. When they become blessed, then they become a saint. That is canonization. Now, let's look at this, because venerable, venerable is the title given to the deceased person who's recognized formally by the Pope. Servant of God is recognized by your diocese. Then that servant of God becomes venerable, which means they're recognized by the Pope formally, having lived a heroic and virtuous life or offered their life as a martyr. No miracle yet. It's just the Pope recognizes this person has a lot of virtue. Then to be beatified or to become a blessed, to be recognized, one miracle is required through their intercession. So somebody says, you know, I was given a miracle by this saint. Now the blessed are worthy of limited liturgical veneration, meaning in their own country, they might have a mass in the ordo. Now, finally then, canonization or the sainthood requires a second miracle. First is for beatification to be blessed. Then you need another miracle for canonization to be a saint. And then you are worthy of universal veneration like St. Faustina around the world. Her miracles were actually for her beatification was Marine Daigan who lives right here with us up here by the shrine. She was cured of lymphedema, which was an incurable disease, does not respond to medication, has, it, it doesn't go into remission, and she was cured. And guess who took her to the tomb of St. Faustina to pray for that healing? Father Seraphim. He was the vice postulator for her cause for canonization, St. Faustina. Anyway, Father Ron Pytel, whose miracle was the cure of incurable heart disease, was the miracle for the canonization of St. Faustina. Now, a miracle is not required for a martyr's beatification, but is required before their canonization. But the Pope may waive this. 
He has the authority. Now, I mentioned Father Seraphim was a postulator. What's a postulator? A person appointed to oversee this whole process. Father Seraphim was the vice postulator for the cause of canonization of St. Faustina. Now, this is important. So five years normally must pass from the time they die before the cause may begin. But this too can be waived by the Pope. I think it was waived with John Paul. I could be wrong. Now, in the early centuries, like the first 500 years, there was no formal processes for recognizing a saint. It was just based on public acclaim. Now, the first saint to ever be canonized. Now, before I show the slide, if anybody knows who the first canonized saint, now I'm not talking about way back like, you know, um, St. Lucy or St. Agatha. Those were all by popular declaration. I'm talking about when the church officially began the canonization process. Um, I'll send, I was going to say, I'll send a free diary to anybody who could type the name in before I post it <laughs> on the screen. Uh, but that's probably too hard to track. But just a little fun with this. Who was the first canonized saint of the church through the formal process? Not the first saint, because St. Augustine was before him, St. John Chrysostom was before him. But who was the first? Show the slide. St. Ulrich of Augsburg. <laughs> July the 4th is his feast day. Now, this is funny because this was the bishop in 993, he was canonized. Now he died in 973. So he was the first one to go through the official process. Just a little interesting tidbit. Now, because of that, we don't know how many saints we have in the church. We don't know how many proclaimed saints because the first century, there weren't real deep records. Now, since 1988 especially, the Congregation for the Causes of the Saints makes that index oxatus status causarum, causarum. And we track it very carefully. Now, we believe there are over 10,000 saints in the church. But what about in America? We don't have, we're a young country. We only have 11. There are 11 American saints, but there are no first, or excuse me, there's been no male-born American saint. We want to pray. It's kind of in the running, people say, between St. Solanus Casey, or I mean, sorry, Solanus Casey, or Bishop Fulton Sheen to become the first American male-born saint. I love Bishop Sheen, but I tell you, from Detroit, St. Solanus Casey, you got to go for him too. All right, last couple things. I want to finish with patron saints. Who is your patron saint? I always was confused by this in high school. They, who are they? Well, first of all, you don't choose your patron saint, they choose you. So you can actually have many patron saints. Now, our first patron saint would be your name. So my patron saint is St. Christopher, the patron saint of travel. So we pray to St. Christopher when we get in the car. If we're given a saint's name, this is easy. So if you're Elizabeth, you know, uh, Elizabeth of Hungary, or if your name is Teresa, you got Teresa of Avila, or, or Therese of Lisieux. It's your name. It could be a middle name, first name, or a middle name. Now, what if you weren't given a saint's name at birth? Some of these names today 
are crazy what these people are naming their kids. Oh my, never heard of these names before. So what do you do if you don't have a saint's name at birth? Well, canon law used to say if a baby's first or middle name was not that of a saint, the priest was to give one at the baptism. Isn't that interesting? That's interesting. Or if that doesn't work, your birthday. You can use your birthday. So mine's Joachim and Anne, the parents of Our Lady. My birthday's July 26th. So July 26th is the feast day of Joachim and Anne, the patron, or excuse me, the parents of Mary. So those are, in a way, my patron saints. I need good parents. That's, we all need good parents. So every day of the year is a feast day of at least one saint. And so you have that option. Or a saint may be designated as a patron for a particular cause, profession, or location, as invoked as a protector against illnesses or diseases. Um, so there's many ways to choose a patron saint. Um, interest, talents, hobbies, your job, your vocation, these can also be your patron saint. What do I mean, all right? If you're a hunter, your patron saint could be Saint Hubert. He was the bishop, get this, of Maastricht, that same cathedral that has the girdle of Mary. Isn't that interesting? And he was the originator of ethical hunting. And so he's the patron saint of hunters, but he gave it up because it was shown to him that it was, became an idol for him. Well, anyway, what about an athlete? Who's your patron saint? Saint Sebastian. I gave a homily on him a few months ago. He was shot by arrows. So like an archer, he's the patron of athletes. What about a cook? Do you know a chef? His patron could be St. Lawrence because he was burned at the stake and they said they smelled burning bread when they burned him at the stake. And he said, you could turn me over now. I'm done on this side. <laughs> oh man. What about sufferings? Like I mentioned, St. Peregrine. If you're a cancer victim, you're, one of your patron saints could be St. Peregrine the patron saint of cancer victims. So there's a patron saint for everything, even your country. Do you know that your diocese has a patron saint? I would strongly suggest that you find out who your diocese patron saint is and pray to them for your church, for vocations for your church. All right, I got friends all over your diocese. Who's your patron saint? Because they can help you. Most cities, and countries, all countries and most cities have patron saints. The patron of the United States of America is the Immaculate Conception. We got a biggie, Mother Mary. Or yours can be a connection that you just feel with a saint. Now, I, none of those fit for me with Saint Rita. I don't have the name Saint Rita. I don't have the birthday. I really wanted to be ordained on May 22nd, which was her feast day. I was so wanting to be ordained on May 22nd. Instead, Father Mark Barron, got to be ordained on, Father, on May 22nd, St. Rita's Day, but I got the visitation, May 31st. That was my ordination date, praise be to God. But I've always felt a connection to St. Rita. People would hand me St. Rita cards out of the blue. Somebody gave me St. Rita relic out of the blue. What that means is heaven has given St. Rita to protect me. And she is the patron of impossible causes. 
<laughs> so now I know why. All right. Now, finally, I guess there was one more little thing. How many saints are there? I mentioned that in the first church's 1,000 years, they were not proclaimed or they were not done process uh, uh, a detailed process, but proclaimed by popular demand. We believe we have over 10,000 saints. All Saints Day, which comes up November 1st, is when we honor those canonized saints. Or, I'm sorry, the feast days of each saint is where we honor canonized saints. All Saints Day, November 1st, is when we honor all the other saints in heaven that are not canonized. So if your mom made it to heaven, she's a saint, She's not canonized, she's not in the church, but on All Saints Day, we recognize her as a saint. So all the saints non-canonized in heaven are honored on November the 1st. And we Marians do a mass here on All Saints Day for your faithful departed if you're a Marian helper. Now, what about the next day, November 2nd? That's All Souls Day. That's where we honor all the souls in purgatory. Why? Because they are saints too. They've just not realized their reward yet. They're being cleaned up. And so, of all these saints, I got to mention, or I'd be remiss, who's the greatest of them all? St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas. Who's the greatest saint of all? Our Blessed Mother. That's a no-brainer, right? So pray for those who have died through the intercession of Mary and all the saints. Even if they are a saint in heaven, your grace will go to another soul that needs it. At the time of their judgment or in purgatory, your grace will not be wasted. The graces will go where they're needed. You know, the Bible tells us that God saves us through his family, not through you alone. It is not just about me and Jesus. It's about me and Jesus and all of you. That's why you're Marian helpers. God bless you for joining us. Thank you very much. I hope you're enjoying coming back to seminary with us. Keep staying with us. We're going to keep these talks coming, God willing. And you know, I do have two more quick slides. If you would like to learn more about what I have been saying, please pick up my new book, which is at shopmercy.org or by calling 1-800-462-7426. And I'd like to make an exciting announcement. Please, I'm going to be doing an EWTN series on, um, on the week before Divine Mercy Sunday, um, April 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, the 5th through the 9th. So Monday through Friday, Monday, uh, April 5th through the Friday, April 9th at 5.30 Eastern time. So 2.30 out in California, I will be on EWTN explaining Divine Mercy. God bless you. It's a condensed version. It's different than what I've done before. So hopefully you'll join us. And then get the book, shopmercy.org. Uh, also, too, I mentioned you could join me for my pilgrimages uh, to France with Deacon Harold Silvers or with Steve Ray to the, whole, uh, to, uh, the Mediterranean and the footsteps of St. Paul. Call Peter, 413-298-1303. And then last but not least, please consider being part of our Marian family. And that is micprayers.com or .org. You see that on your screen, takes less than 10 seconds to sign up and costs nothing. But we would love to have you with us as part of our family. So thank you again, everybody. And may almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Why be a Marian helper? Because we Marian fathers celebrate a mass for you and all our members each and every day. You can share in all the prayers, good works, and merits of all the Marian priests and brothers around the world. And now you can share the graces just as if you were a Marian priest or brother. Every All Souls Day, we see a mass for all the deceased members of the Association of Marian Helpers. Again, there's no way that after we die, we can help ourselves, but we have to rely on the prayers of those here on earth. And we members of the Marian Fathers will be praying for you as a deceased member of our association. You can share in the graces of the perpetual novena to the divine mercy. Remember Jesus told St. Faustina that the chaplet of divine mercy is one of the most powerful prayers we can make. And every day here at the shrine of divine mercy, we pray it and you can share in those graces. So if you have any questions or you want to learn more how to be a Marian helper, please visit micprayers.com or call 1-800-462-7426 and let me personally pray for you and your loved ones. Thank you and may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content, which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit divinemercyplus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's divinemercyplus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily Masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign-up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.